We're nearing the end of 2 Timothy and this um, series that we've entitled Relentless Truth. And, and we've seen again and again how that's shown up, and we're going to see it in this passage. So I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. There are um, Bibles in your pews. You can also read along online if you did not bring your own. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, and your suffering, do the work of, of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved, who have loved his appearing. So the title of the sermon is The Marks of Faithful Pastors and Christians. You know, we always try to pay attention to the context, and the context here is Paul is giving like his final words of his final words to Timothy. And we've, we've kind of gone over this every week about how Paul and Timothy have this really like close spiritual relationship. Paul is, is Timothy's spiritual mentor, his spiritual father, but they've also co-labored together. And oftentimes when you read the word you in the Bible, it's actually plural. It's talking about multiple people, but here the you is singular. Paul is talking to Timothy. But as we've reminded ourselves, these, these letters were meant to be read out loud. They weren't personal letters like our letters today. They were meant to be read to the church. And we could go unpack the rest of Paul, and we would know that what Paul is telling Timothy, he expects really every Christian to do, every Christian to be. This is a love letter in the truest sense because it is this true, pure love that only comes from God. It's Paul doing something that I think is a sign of love. It's a sign of genuine Christian love. And that is, he's giving Timothy a proper goodbye. He's not just saying, see ya. He's not just trying to avoid this kind of emotional, awkward situation. No, he's taking the time. This letter itself is love, expression of Paul's love, because he takes the time to say goodbye. This is also a grace, a blessing. Paul is, is being blessed by being given time to write. He's in prison, and, and he has time to write before he's going to be executed. And Timothy is being blessed because someone like Paul is writing to him. This is God's grace. If you just look at it from a human perspective, it's like, man, this is terrible. You know, someone is losing someone so close to them. This is terrible. This is Paul being unjustly imprisoned and he's going to be unjustly executed. This is horrible. You know, if we look at it from a worldly perspective, that's what we see. But if we understand that this is God's grace, that God is blessing them, that there's so many other ways this story could have ended, we see something more going on. And I asked this question before, but how many of you read letters that were written 2,000 years ago. None of us except the ones we find in the Bible. 
This is a blessing and a grace to us. God granted Paul the time to write to Timothy, and over the past 2,000 years, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, have read this letter and been blessed by it and influenced by it. Don't ever fall into the trap Timothy's in. Don't ever fall into the trap of being overwhelmed by what it looks like is going on in the world around you. Know that God is in control. God has a plan. And God can use you in every situation. But as Paul's reminding Timothy, it's like, but you need to be faithful. You cannot get overwhelmed. And so what we see here in this text in verse 1, he, he reminds Timothy of the most important context. We talk about context here a lot. We're starting a new study in uh, our, our Sunday morning Bible study, and we're going through Galatians. We talked a little bit about context, and, and as we say often, context gives us meaning. Context is everything. We cannot really understand words unless we have context. Paul is giving Timothy the greatest context. He says, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. I'm charging you in their presence. But he's reminding Timothy that you are always in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. When we get to the end of this, he's, he's going to be talking about fulfilling your ministry. He's, and he's going to be talking about how he has finished his race. And what he's established is, look, all that we're going through, all that we're facing, the race that we run, the good fights we have to fight, it is in the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you, who, who knows you, and who wants to use you for his purposes. He's reminding Timothy of this great context. And he's telling him, this is... This is Christ Jesus, the one who's coming, the one whose kingdom will come. This is not about you, Timothy. This is not about your enemies. It's not about your false teachers. It's not about the Romans. It's not about those weak Christians in the church that keep following the false teachers. It's not about them. It is about God. It is about Jesus Christ. It is about his gospel and his kingdom. We cannot interpret what's going on in our world and in our lives without the context that we find in God's word, the context of God's kingdom, the context of the gospel. He's reminding Timothy how important it is to keep that in mind. The second thing he tells him in verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word. It's funny, like of all the things that Paul could tell Timothy at the end, you would think Paul would have been like, man, I'm running out of time, I'm running out of ink, I'm running out of paper. Oh, what, what should I tell Timothy? Should I tell him the most obvious thing that I've seen him do and that he should do, and it's kind of in his title, preacher? Sh should I tell him that? Yeah, that's what I'm going to tell them. It's that important. Preach the word. He reminds Timothy of his most important task. And then he says, always be ready. Always be ready in every situation. And he says, in season and out of season. And that's just Paul's way of saying always. But when I started thinking about it, for you as a, as a Christian, could there be more than one season? And I think there, 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 there can be, although I think a lot of times these seasons should overlap. And what are the two seasons? The two seasons are getting ready to preach the word, getting ready to teach the word, and the second part is just doing it. Just doing it. Always be ready. 
it's not just an ability thing, it's also an attitude thing. Never be too afraid to preach the word. Never be too busy to preach the word. Never be too proud to preach the word. Even under preach the word, he, he, he kind of gives him the full, the full spectrum of what preaching the word is. The words that are translated into English are reprove, rebuke, and exhort. I kind of, kind of boiled it down this way to words that I think we use more familiar, or are more familiar to us. Reprove is, is the idea of correct. And you're correcting not just because someone's like in willfully doing something wrong. You're correcting them because, you know, they're, they may even be trying, but they're just... They're just not getting it right. They're not understanding it. Correct them. But then he says rebuke. Rebuke's a little different. Rebuke means you're calling that person out. You're calling out the church. You're calling out those who are going in a different direction, who are going after the false teachers. Rebuke them. Call them out. Don't just say like, oh, you know... They're going to believe what they're going to believe. It's like, no. Call them out. Rebuke them. And then he says, exhort. And exhort kind of has this, could be positive, could be negative in the way you exhort. But it's really this idea of challenging them. If, 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 you're, if you're trying to exhort people who are already, you know, doing all they can, you're just, you're just kind of encouraging them helping them push forward, but if you're exhorting people who you've had to rebuke or correct, then you're exhorting them to do the things they need to do to to fix whatever that problem is. Exhort. If you come here for our Sunday morning worship, I I know Pastor John and I This is our intent. But I hope you come wanting, as we preach God's word, reproof, rebuke, and exhortation. Not every Sunday we need as much of each. Sometimes we don't need as much of the reproof. Sometimes we don't need as much of the rebuke. But we always need to be exhorted. But then, as Paul's been doing throughout this letter, at the end of verse 2, he goes, with complete patience and teaching. Just when you think like Paul's getting all charged up, you know, preach the word, go correct those wrong people, you know, take them on. And then he adds, with complete patience and teaching. He's, he's reminding Timothy, as he's reminded him before, when he said, you know, correct those false teachers with gentleness. The idea isn't to go in there just, you know, swinging and, you know, trying to, you know, get rid of all the problems today. It's with patience and teaching. The way you preach the word should reflect what God's word should be accomplishing in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit. And Paul knows that, that Timothy is discouraged. He sees people wandering away from the faith, following the false teachers. Paul knows it. He still tells him, teach, preach with patience, and teach and preach completely. In verse 3, he, 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 again, he says, the time is coming, but this is ways Paul, Paul saying, it's already here, and Timothy knows it. The time is coming, and he talks about itching ears. And he's reminding him of, of that even though there are people that, that don't want to listen to truth, Even those who consider themselves Christians want some kind of modified version of Christianity, a modified version of of the gospel that kind of fits more with their life or with their culture. He goes, even though they, they they don't want to hear truth, 
They have these itching ears. Even though there's opposition, even though there's these false teachers leading them astray, even though all that's happening, God is still in control. God is not surprised. He's, he's known this is in the world, and he knows it will be here till the kingdom comes. And he says, in, instead of being discouraged by this, he says, as for you, always be sober-minded. The picture of sober-mindedness there is this picture of, of, you know, not being drunk, but actually, you know, kind of being clear-headed, understanding. And, so, you know, some people think that the picture is that, is that the, he's just talked about how the people with itching ears are kind of getting drunk on the false teachings. And he's like, no. You need to be sober-minded, always on guard. But he doesn't like sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, look, if you just believe in Jesus, everything's going to work out. No, he says, he says, be sober-minded, endure suffering. He's already told him, if you teach and preach and follow the truth, you will suffer. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. He's telling him that you need to do every bit of it. And you need to do it in a way that is pleasing to God. Fulfilling your ministry is not just doing the task but it is doing them with the right heart, the right mind, the right motivation. And finally, we have this, verses 6 through 8, we have Paul talking about himself, and he's kind of using him as, as himself as an example of what he just told Timothy to do in verse 5. And some people, I think, misunderstand this, where they, when he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, some people think like, oh, this is Paul saying, oh, poor me, I'm suffering, I, I, I don't have anything left. It's like, no. He's saying, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. What was a drink offering for in, in, in the Jewish sacrificial system? It was, it was, some, it was something that was, that was made you know, blessed and holy, and it was a gift to God, and it was a sign of gratitude and celebration. Paul is not saying, oh man, I'm just, I, I got only you know, a little bit left. He's like, no, I'm being, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. God found me worthy to be poured out as a drink offering. That's awesome. And he says, I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. You see, he uses himself as an example of faithfulness because he knows Timothy knows him. He knows Timothy doesn't think this is Paul bragging. He knows this is the same Paul that has again and again said, everything I do is rubbish. It is not me. It is Christ in me. It is by his power it is because of God's will, his purposes. Timothy knows. And Timothy knows him well enough that when he reads these words, all Timothy can say is, that's right, Paul. And then Paul ends by saying, there is a, there's a crown of righteousness. Now, I don't want to use this as a litmus test of where your kind of priorities are. But when you read the phrase, the crown of righteousness, which word are you emphasizing? And where do you stop? There's a lot of people, a lot of Christians, who stop on the word crown. Look at the crown. Okay, what's the crown? What's the crown look like? Where's the, you know, you know, how, you know 
is, it, is my crown going to be bigger than your crown? And they just focus on crown. Paul's saying the crown of righteousness. To Paul, far more valuable than a crown is to be deemed righteous by God. It's not about crowns. It's not about crowns. And we shared this on Wednesday night at the Bible study, and we didn't really have time to go look at it, but you can go look at it later on. Don't do it now. But in Revelations, you read in Revelations, you can, you're going to find out what we do with our crowns. We don't go on crown parade in heaven. Here's my crown. We see Jesus. You know what we do with our crowns? We throw them down. If you're living for a crown, you still don't got it quite right. It's about righteousness. I love that last bit by Paul. It's so powerful. You've probably heard it, like read at, at funerals and sometimes in context, sometimes in not. But I like it because here's Paul, and Paul is really communicating in all of these images, all of these like just very powerful statements. He's saying, up until my very last breath, I am surrendered. And then after my last breath, I am deemed righteous. Not because of his works, but because of the Savior in whom he believed. Because of Jesus Christ. Because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. He gets every second The world we live in, the church we live in, one of the struggles we have is that many Christians limit how and how long God will use them. They limit how God will use them. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Oh, God could never use me to do this. God could never use me to do that. You know why? Because God is so weak, he can't teach you. He can't help you. He can't give you gifts. He, you, God is so weak, he can't do that, right? Because that's what you say when you say, God could never use me to do that. You are limiting God. For those who are on the other side, they don't just limit how God will use them. They want to limit how long God will use them. You know, they're going to be you know, really kind of focused on being used by God for a period of their life. But not like Paul. Not till the very last step. You see, we, there's a lot of things that kind of take place in the modern church that weakens the church. And this is one of them. And it doesn't just weaken the church, it, it weakens each Christian who thinks this way. We take our eyes off of, of God. We take our eyes off of his kingdom. We take our eyes off of, 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 of how he can, he can empower us and how can he can equip us and how he can use us. And like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, even though God might not ever use you in every way that you are ready to be used, as believers in Christ, we are called to be equipped for every good work. So we have so many Christians who limit God. They limit how God will use them, and how long he will use them. Well, if we go back to this and just get these kind of main points about what the text is telling us today, the first thing is, again, this isn't just to Timothy. This isn't 
just to pastors. This is to every Christian to be prepared to do what Paul is telling Timothy to do. And that is that we need to be getting ready to preach the God-breathed Word and then preach it. Remember last week when John was preaching? That wasn't like from another letter. That wasn't from a different book. It's right here, and it's just right before it. He had just told us about this word, that this word is God-breathed. Preparing to preach God's word, the God-breathed word, is more than just learning methodology. It's more than just having a proper proper interpretive approach. Those things matter. They're important. But when we preach the God-breathed word, we're preaching the very words of God. Whether we're preaching it from a from a pulpit or whether we're teaching children or whether we're just sitting at a coffee shop talking to one of our friends who wants to know more. No matter the setting, if we really believe God's word is God-breathed, it is a sacred moment and a sacred task. We need to be ready, not just with the skills, but we need to be ready with the right heart and right spirit that's why we talk about discipleship here discipleship isn't simply learning facts and information and reciting doctrine and having methodology discipleship is also the transformation that takes place in our lives the fruit of the spirit becoming more apparent in our lives Get ready to preach the God-breathed word and preach it. Paul started there with preach the word, and then at the end of this, he said, in verse 5, he says, fulfill your ministry, and then he has that kind of, you know, detail sandwich in between. He's telling Timothy, in summary, know your job. Be prepared to do it. Do your job. He's saying, don't just pick and choose the ministry you want. It's the ministry that God has given you. The the action point sounds redundant. It's that we've been talking about again and again, but it's for us, what can we do with this is to be discipled. Be discipled so that you can be prepared for any ministry. We all should be in some process and and perhaps they're overlapping of getting ready or we're already ready and we're doing things and we're still getting ready. The stage we shouldn't be at is we're ready and not doing anything. A question that I think Pastor John and I would love to have from some of you is to come in and ask us, can you tell me, am I ready? Am I equipped to disciple? Am I equipped to help teach others? Am I equipped to take other, up other ministries in this church? And then, if our answer is yes, we've been waiting for you, you know, Then the question is, well, how can I be used? But we promise to be honest with you, and if you're not ready, we're going to tell you you're not ready. Then your question should be, what do I need to do to get ready? If we're asking these questions, we are are getting into that whole flow of discipleship, being equipped, being prepared, equipping and preparing others. It's not enough just to say, you know, I'm kind of getting the, you know, the idea of love and patience and faith and all that. That's good. Well, that's good. I'm glad. Oftentimes it's evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And it's also not enough to just say, you know what? 
Um, I got, um, I, I, I'm really good at studying the Bible. And, you know, I've got all these, you know, things that I do, and I got all this knowledge. Uh, just ask me anything. Well, that's important too. But we want more and more of, of the people in the church who have both of that. They have the knowledge, but they also have that, that, the fruit of the Spirit being grown and born in their lives. Because then we can teach the way Paul said. We can teach with complete patience. We can correct with gentleness. The second point comes from this verse 3 where he's, he's, he's telling you know, Timothy, these people, there's always going to be people like that who will not follow sound teaching. It's always going to happen. And the point is this, that we need to beware of believing or even ourselves developing a false Christianity that simply says what you want to hear. It's why we need pastors and others who, who know the word. And I'm not going to tell you every pastor is going to, you know, not fall prey to this. But we need people who know the word and will preach the word. And not simply tell you what you want to hear. It is just human nature. We prefer beautiful, attractive lies to truth. We just do. Oh, everybody says, no, 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 tell me the truth. I can handle the truth. Just tell me the truth. I don't want you lying to me. And then you start telling them the truth. They're just like, they don't want to hear from you anymore. They stop talking to you. Paul's already shown that the heart of the false teacher is, is this heart that's kind of caught up in sin. It's a slave to sin. And now he's saying, you know the the heart of the person who's attracted to these false teachings, it's the same. And he's talking about this big fancy word we used this morning in Sunday school, syncretism. Syncretism is, is modifying Christianity to kind of fit already held beliefs or practices or philosophies. And this is kind of the worst kind of syncretism because it's syncretism at the personal level, at the individual level. I am going to look at Christianity and I'm going to custom make it for myself. I'm going to cut out the parts I don't like. I'm going to, you know, change the meaning of certain things. The danger of personal syncretism, which is also the danger of some of these false teachers, is it can look very holy. The person can look very religious, but they're engaging in some kind of personal syncretism. They may be the hardest working person, but you don't know why they're working so hard. They may, very, may, may be very moral, but you don't know if that morality is coming from the work of Christ in their lives or if it's just their own sense of morality that they're imposing on themselves. They may be great with, with their family. They may have even kind of look servant-heartedness. It's this syncretism. Oh, some of them are more obvious. You know, the ones that are kind of addicted to themselves and addicted to their own personal happiness or are just obsessed with, with whatever is going on in their lives. And then they kind of modify Christianity so it just, you know, appeases them. Yeah, sometimes it's more obvious. But at the heart of chasing after these false teachings is that this human need for religion is this need to, to have control. We want control over this world, over this existence. And we want that control either through keeping rules or following rituals. Give us rules. Give us rituals. Give us works. Give me a chart that if I achieve a certain level, then I'm in and I'm good. We want control. We want religion that simply makes us feel good about ourselves. 
We want to leave having heard a sermon just happy, feeling better. Oftentimes people want a religion that promises them them material blessings, prosperity, knowledge, happiness. On one side, you have the people that want a religion that demands something of them so they can have control, and then other people want a religion that doesn't demand anything. I can do and say and be what I want. Others just want a faith. They want a God. They want a religion that just will be there when they're in trouble and will solve their problems. My marriage is struggling. Okay, I'm going to go to church and try to fix it. I'm having trouble with my kids. I'm going to go to church and try to fix it. Because I know that's what the church is there for. Many people want what false teachers are selling. And they want it because they have that thin gospel because they haven't been discipled and grounded in God's word. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Christianity itself, is prophetic in the truest sense of prophecy. Prophecy is not this thinking about, oh, what's the future about? Prophecy is about speaking into lives, speaking into culture, and saying, you are wrong. You are going the wrong way. If you keep going this way, it will lead to your destruction and the destruction of everyone else. God provided another way. Christianity stands alone as the prophetic prophetic voice that says, no matter how we clean up, no matter how we dress up, no matter how we modernize our, our world, at the heart of humanity... And in the heart of every human being is sin. That is so controversial to so many people and to so many Christians. But it is what the Bible tells us. And this sin is seen in in selfishness, pride, this obsession with happiness. And it's this sin that will eventually doom each of us and all of us. Technology intended intended to help in the hands of sinful humanity will become and develop more powerful and more permanent ways to destroy ourselves. You see, without the perfect love and compassion that can only come from God, we are just creating more and more ways to destroy ourselves. Science can help. Science can help with so many problems, but it cannot solve the sin problem. It cannot give us new hearts of perfect love. We cannot develop this love on our own. We need a Savior, and we need a Savior who will not just save us, not just pull us out of the fire, but a Savior who will change us, each of us. And all of us. This is the hope of salvation that we find in the gospel. And it begins with an honest look at the sinfulness of humanity. It begins with an honest look at the ever-increasing danger our world is running towards. And it admits that we need more than help. We need to be made new. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need God's Word. We need God to transform us and then use us to help bring this message and this kingdom to the rest of the world. You see, that gospel, the gospel I just kind of summarized there, and yeah, I left out a few pieces, but hopefully you know that I can plug them back in, right? That gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sin, the new life in Christ, the Jesus who is the Savior and the Lord, that gospel does not exalt you 
and it doesn't exalt me, and it doesn't exalt humanity. That gospel exalts God, the one true, perfectly loving, sovereign creator and redeemer of the universe. You see, the gospel is not about meeting my perceived needs. It is about meeting the one, the most important need we all have, and that is the need of salvation from our sin and for reconciliation with God. The gospel is not about fulfilling my desire, my happiness, or helping me live my best life now. It is about Jesus, the source and the way to true hope, true joy, true peace. This is not a gospel that soothes itching ears. It's one that meets our true need in the deepest part of our souls. It is a gospel that convicts, confronts, challenges, crucifies. But it is also the gospel that saves the helpless, gives hope to the hopeless, cleanses the sinners, empowers the weak, turns haters of God into lovers, turns selfishness into selfless servanthood, takes our eyes off ourselves and turns them toward God and then each other. It is the gospel that transforms us into the image of the Son of God so that we can have true community with him and with all who have been saved forever and ever. Amen. That is a gospel worth preaching. That is a gospel worth believing. That is a gospel worth living and suffering and dying for. Do we know the gospel? Do we understand what's at stake? And do we understand what the results can be when we follow the gospel. The last point is what Paul wrote at the end there. And that's that true Christianity means to surrender every second, every ounce of our lives to Christ. I like how how Paul used that example of poured out like a libation. Every ounce. Not pour half, take a sip. Every ounce. He's fought the good fight. He's not just been in the struggle, but he's fought the good fight. He's not just fought a fight. He's not just overcome some challenges. He's fought the fight of bringing the gospel to the world. And he's done it in a way that's consistent with the claims of the gospel. He's run the race. He's kept the faith. Again, it's this idea of of celebration. Yeah, it's sad. He's telling Timothy goodbye, and I'm pretty sure Timothy's crying when he's reading it. But Paul is like, this isn't, you know, it's sad. I'm not going to be with you, Timothy, but it's not sad because I'm going to be with Jesus. He's not simply saying, I've given my all. Again, that drink libation is, is, is so important because it's this, it's, it's a libation. Libation just means drink, by the way, or liquid. And it's, it's something that would have been, you know, blessed and, you know, made holy, dedicated to God. And then God uses it. And Paul's saying, God used Every drop that he poured into me. That's awesome. You know, a lot of times pastors my age like to criticize the young folks. They like to look at them Gen Zers and those millennials and tell them why they're horrible people. Well, to use uh, Pastor John's 
phrase of tough love. It's just tough love for the older generations. Tough love for the boomers and what they call the greatest generation. You see, a lot of people in the United States were brought up with this idea that the purpose of life and the purpose of having a job is to work hard so you can retire. Okay. But unfortunately, a lot of people from those generations have also brought that mentality into their faith. And even though they don't ever stop being Christians, they retire. They retire from discipleship. They retire from really continuing to press on and grow and learn and be equipped. They retire from, from being used. They retire from serious Christianity, and now they have, you know, you know Florida, um, you know, wherever your favorite vacation spot is, Christianity. I still show up, and I still sit in my cabana, you know, and I have on my, you know, my sandals and socks, and, and that's, that's my Christianity. I'm still here. My challenge to that generation, or even if you're not in that generation, you have that mentality, is do you, do you understand that you are retiring in the presence of God and Christ Jesus your Lord? Do you understand that when you said, I give my life to Christ, I didn't give up until the age of retirement, and then that was all for me? Do you understand that if we're doing this all in the presence of Christ, that, that our goal, our objective should be like Paul, to be able to say, I'm being poured out like a drink libation. I have, I have fought the good fight. Not I fought it and that was like 20 years ago. I'm, I fought it up until the last breath. I'm going to tell you, I've said this before and, and some people say this isn't what pastors should say, but I don't care. I say it anyways. We need you. This church needs you. God is blessing this church in so many ways. It's just amazing to me. But we need you. We, we, we don't need people on vacation in our church. We need you. But let me tell you this too. You need us. You need us. Nobody has arrived at a level of spirituality or knowledge where they no longer need to be discipled and to be growing. When is the last time God amazed you, not by doing some miracle in your life or something that you prayed for coming true, but when was the last time God amazed you by revealing to you something about himself through his word that you didn't know before? You see, what happens sometimes in churches is, is, is like, you know, we're listening or we're going and then they say something we don't like. Or, or we say, they say something we disagree with. And at that point, sometimes we just go, ah, I don't like it, we disagree with it, we just sit there. But sometimes it makes us upset enough that we go look for another church because they said something we don't like. They said something we didn't agree with. I'm not going to tell you it's always this, but I'm going to tell you it's sometimes this. When you hear something that is being preached from God's word that you don't like or you don't agree with, what that is sometimes God doing is he's finding that place in your life that needs to change, and he's bringing the word to it, and you're saying, I don't like it, I don't agree with it, I don't even want to think about it, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go away from it. And you will never grow because you won't confront the thing that brings you discomfort. If that's you, you've got to stop. 
We all have things in our lives, habit, sin, attitude, that needs to be clean, that we need to be freed from. And God's not going to do it all at once. But we have to be willing to be confronted by God's word so that we can receive correction, we can receive rebuke, but also so that we can be exhorted. Keep being prepared. Keep being used by God with every breath, including your final one. And I don't care if you're 15 years old and you're a believer in Christ, or you're 87 years old and you're a believer in Christ, what our prayer should be, and even what our question, not just to ourselves, but to God should be, is what can I contribute with what time I have left? We never retire as Christians. We just get new assignments. So we come and we see Paul nearing this, the end of his life, just pouring out his heart to Timothy. And we are not necessarily in that dramatic of a moment in our lives, but nevertheless, we need to understand this truth. We need to know that God wants each and every one of us to be those who are equipped to preach his word and to be preaching and teaching it in any opportunity that he gives us. That we are strong in our understanding of the gospel so that we do not follow the false teaching and the false teachers that have been around for 2,000 years. And that we will give every second, every ounce in service to our Lord and Savior.